Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. Our text is actually the whole chapter, but I think that you'll get what you need here in the first seven verses. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the conviction that we see of the early church and of Paul. Thank you for the blessing that that conviction has been to us as recipients of the gospel. And I pray today, God, as we hop back into this great book, that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us and teach us, and that you would uh, see fit, God, to bless us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So if you're a guest with us, uh, or even if you just have forgotten where we've been, the book of Acts is written by a guy whose name is Luke. Luke is a historian and a medical physician, and he writes a two-volume story, a two-volume letter to a guy by the name of, I forget, Theophilus, thank you. I was just testing you. I remembered the whole time. Um, That's ridiculous that I forgot. Theophilus is a Roman official who uh, is a new believer, and Luke writes this letter, first the Gospel of Luke and second the book of Acts, to his buddy to try to kind of cement him in his faith. And he first tells him about Jesus, and he second tells him about the early church. And what we see in the book of Acts is in the Acts chapter 1, Jesus uh, has risen from the dead. He's standing before the apostles, and he is commissioning them with the message of the gospel that he wants them to take to the ends of the earth. And we really get the outline of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus says, you're going to be witnesses of me, and you're going to start in Jerusalem, where you are. You're going to go to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost. And what we see in the book of Acts is that through... Acts 15, the church is really functioning according to that very local commission. They are teaching the gospel predominantly in Jerusalem, uh, but it begins to spread out in Acts 7 and 8 and 9. And by the time you get to Acts 15, the church is really trying to grapple with this idea of who the gospel is for and how important it is and how they should speak it and do it and say it. And we're introduced to a guy by the name of Saul, who is now Paul. And the church is arguing about who the gospel is for in Acts chapter 15. That's where we ended our study. And the argument is really, is the gospel for the Jews only, for this specific group of people, or is it for everyone? And Peter is a guy who God has been at work in, and Paul is a guy who God has been at work in, and they're arguing. And Paul is a dude who is arguing pretty vehemently. He actually says that he withstood Peter to the face. Okay, so picture two guys kind of face-to-face yelling and spitting, all that kind of deal. And Paul is, is adamant that the gospel, the gospel is for everyone. And so as the church is growing and as the church is expanding, as the church is going forward, the church is struggling 
with who to let in and how to deal with who's trying to get in and the differences and all that kind of deal. And I just want to, I just want to take a step back here, and I want to, I want to, to say to you uh, that the church is really still struggling with that idea, isn't it? Um, we don't have <coughs> Jerusalem councils; we have Council of Facebook, don't we? And uh, and we still go on and we argue and we like and we poke. I don't know what that is, but we do it. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and things come up in our world, things like Ferguson and New York City, things uh, like politics, things, uh, lots of different things that really bring back to the surface how the church is going to address and handle with uh, who gets in, who do we invite, who do we keep out. And in Acts chapter 15, the church comes to this belief uh, that everybody is invited, Right? Everybody is invited, uh, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of politics, regardless of economics. Everybody is invited into the message of the gospel. The antidote to division isn't, listen, isn't progressive ideals. It isn't better politicians. It's the gospel. And if we want to see racial reconciliation, the answer is, the gospel. And if we want to see gender reconciliation, the answer is the gospel. And if we want to see political reconciliation, imagine, the answer is the gospel. And if we want inequality to be addressed, the answer is the gospel. And Paul is a guy who, uh, in the face of his version of Ferguson, his version of New York City, his version of every four years a new politician, his version of gender issues, his version of economic and educational inequality, he's a guy who stands up and argues the gospel is the answer, the gospel has to go forth, the gospel is the, the reason that we're here, the thing we gather, and everyone is invited in. Everyone's invited in. It's really the subtext of the book of Acts. Does everyone get in or not? Does everybody get invited or not? And the book of Acts vehemently says, yes. That's the kind of church that we want to be. It's the kind of church that we want to be. I, I, I love the fact that right now uh, we're a reasonably diverse church around a couple levels. We're politically diverse. We're economically diverse. We're obviously gender diverse. We've got some work to do on racially diverse, right? Uh, but the answer isn't programs and policies, and the answer is the gospel. To make much of Jesus, to, to put a pillar of the gospel in the middle of this room and say anyone who would come can come and is invited to come. And that's, that's what happens in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul, fresh off of his argument with Peter in Acts 15, uh, sets out to follow his conviction. He sets out to follow his conviction and we see what happens is he goes on what would have been his second missionary journey, and we see a transition in the book of Acts. Acts 1 through 15, the central figure is a guy by the name of Peter. Acts 16 to 28, the central figure is a guy by the name of Paul. Acts 1 to 15 is Jerusalem. 16 to 28 is Antioch. 1 to 15 is Jewish. 16 to 28 is Gentile. And 16 to 28, we're introduced to a dude by the name of Timothy, who had received two letters from Paul, first and second Timothy, yeah. And Luke begins to stop referring to what's happening as they and start referring it to we. And so we know that Luke shows up and is along for the ride. And in 16 to 28, we essentially get the last two missionary journeys of Paul. What he does, who he goes to, 
what happens. And the reason that it happens is the conviction that we see from him in Acts chapter 15 that everybody is invited, that everybody is invited. I don't want you to miss that point. The reason Acts 16 through 28 happens is the conviction of Paul in Acts 15. So in Acts 16, we're introduced to three people who become followers of Jesus. The first is a very successful entrepreneurial woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia is in the fashion business. She's got a home in an area called Thyatira, and she's got a second home in an area called Philippi. And in Philippi, she runs into a guy by the name of Paul, and Lydia's a worshiper of God, and Lydia says, you know what you should do? You should plant a church, and you should plant it out of my house. So the first house church that we see in the book of Acts is in an entrepreneurial woman by the name of Lydia's house, and that's why this church at Philippi gets started, and that's why the book of Philippians is written. It's to that church. The second person that becomes a follower of Jesus is a slave girl who is possessed by a demon and can tell the future. How about that for a conversion? On Christmas Eve, we had people come up and talk about what God had done in their life. No one said, well, I was a slave girl who was demon-possessed and could tell the future. But now, we had some good ones, but not that. Yeah. What happens is she sees that Paul and Silas are followers of Jesus, and she literally follows them around and is like, they are servants of the Most High God. Right? Now, the first time that that happens, that's probably cool. Like, yeah, we are. But the 89th time, it's like, listen... Seriously, and so here's what Paul does. To get her to stop, he gives her the gospel and she becomes a Christian, all right? She becomes a Christian, and what happens is she is released of the demon, and with the releasing of the demon, she is released of her power to see the future, and her masters, who have monetized this ability, are angry that their bank is no longer available to them. And so they figure out a way to get Paul and Silas thrown in jail. As Paul and Silas are in jail, they, are, they essentially are worshiping and praising God. The Philippian jailer is converted him and his household. The point being this. Acts 16, we begin to see Paul's conviction take place, and we begin to see different kinds of people come to Jesus. Right? Can you think of a more diverse crowd than a jailer, a slave girl who's demon-possessed, and a success, successful entrepreneur? I mean, one is an, uh, you know, a socialite, an, an urbanite. One is, does not have a freedom, and one's a, just a blue-collar dude with a family trying to make a good, a good life for, for, for those that he loves. And all of them come to Jesus by the grace of God and the conviction of Paul. And that's what church is, right? It's what church is. It's all different kinds of people coming, finding Jesus, saved by Jesus, saved by God's grace and their faith in him, and we come together and the church gathers, the church gathers to be reminded of who Jesus is and to encourage one another, and that's what church is supposed to look like, supposed to look like. And we read Acts chapter 16, or I do, and I'm like, I want that, I want that. I, I, I want to go places, and I want, I want uh, demon-possessed people to, to be healed, and I want socialites to be saved, and I want blue-collar dudes to come to know Jesus, and I want God to use me like that. And I hope that you do too. I hope that if you're sitting in here today and you're a part of Damascus Road, something that makes your heart pitter-patter is the idea that God wants to use you. God wants to use your life for eternal purposes. God has plans and purposes and intense for you right now to change somebody's world, to change somebody's life, to change their destiny 
and their eternity. God wants to use you to do that. And I get excited when I read stories in the book of Acts of God doing that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is really the end of the story. It's not the beginning. And most of us are somewhere begin in between uh, the beginning and the end, as it were. And so what I want to do today, as we head into the new year, is I want to take a step back from Acts 16, and I want you to be able to see the sequence that God sovereignly used in Paul's life to prepare him to be used. Does that make sense? What did God do to Paul, in a lot of ways, and with Paul to prepare him to be used so that by the time you get to Acts 16 and really all the way through the, the end of the book of Acts, you just see God mightily using a man in a way I hope a lot of us do, okay? So three things, if you're taking notes. The first is God begins to work on Paul's character, Paul's character. In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, Paul is Saul. And Saul is going about and he's persecuting the church and he's on his way to Damascus and on Damascus Road, yeah, on, Dam- <laughs> on Damascus Road, God saves Paul. He saves Saul. He turns him into Paul. He blows out his eardrum. Um, or that was just me right now, yeah. Um, and he begins to work on his character. And if you're reading through the book of Acts, you go, wow, in Acts chapter 9, Saul is this guy who's persecuting the church and hates the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is, was Saul, and now he's Paul, and he's being sent out, and he's being used by God, and I want that, and it should just be like this, right? Okay, in between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 13, do you know how long it was? 13 years. 13 years. And do you know what Paul and Saul was doing in those 13 years? He was being discipled. He was being discipled by a guy named Ananias and by a guy named Barnabas. And they were teaching him how to love Jesus well. And they were teaching him how to be a godly man. And they were teaching him how to walk with God. And they were teaching him how to hear from God. And it took about 13 years for him to get to Acts chapter 13. We live in a microwave society, don't we? We want God to save us, throw us like a burrito in our microwave, hit 30 seconds, and us to come out the Apostle Paul. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The Bible does not operate on instant gratification. It works on growth that is agricultural. Put a seed in the ground, water it, put some light on it, twiddle your thumbs. What I need you to understand is that for God to use you mightily, he wants to transform your character drastically. And listen to me. The responsibility for that to happen is yours. It's yours. Paul is a guy who 13 years of discipleship, 13 years of study. He goes to community group. He goes to Porterbrook. He goes to celebrate recovery. He shows up. He cleans the stupid toilets, right? He's just a part of the communities asking people, would you pray with me? Would you invest in me? Would you care for me? Would you walk with me? He's taking it on himself to do that. 13 years later, he gets sent out as a missionary. And what's interesting about the life of Paul is that when he starts to write epistles, he gives himself names. The first time he introduces himself, he refers to himself as the least of the apostles. Okay, so remember that the apostles used to be the disciples, and after Jesus ascends back to the Father, they become the apostles, the foundation of the church. And Paul says, I'm the least of those 12 to 14 guys. Okay, which 
is humble, right? But it's kind of like saying, I'm the worst all-star. Like, you still get a $70 million contract. You know what I'm saying? Um, by the time Paul is done, do you know how he refers to himself? Chief of sinners. Do you know what that shows? It shows that by God's grace and in God's sovereignty and in the investment of others, Paul's character was developed. Now, it took time, and it took investment, it took intentionality, it took planning to be changed, like we talked about last week. But Paul's character was the fundamental way that God changed him and the fundamental way that God could use him. Lots of times I run in to young people, and they want God to use them. They just don't want God to change anything about them. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. And most of the time, even when we say, okay, God, you can change some things about me, we've got that. We talked about it last week, that everyone gets a trophy society, right, in which God isn't allowed to say no. God isn't allowed to say you're guilty. God isn't allowed to say you can't do that. God is here to help me, make me feel good, comfort me, and put a smile on my face. That isn't how it works. Paul is a guy who comes to God, and and Paul's a salty guy. He is. He's full of himself. He's full of all of the the good things about himself. He's got very high self-esteem. He's got lots of trophies from Little League in his his room, right? He's he's a guy who who thinks that God ought to be glad that, that he would give himself to him. And over time and over in, uh, you know, years and because of investment, Paul is broken down and humbled, not humiliated, humbled to the place that his character, listen, is moldable. And that's what God's looking for from you and I. It's the fundamental thing to be used is God, I am clay and you are the potter. And that takes time, and that takes investment, and that takes discipleship, and that takes intentionality. And the first thing that we see in Paul's life is Acts 9, God saves him. 13 years later, he's sent out. By Acts 15, when he's standing face to face with Peter, full of conviction, he has lots of years of his character being developed. Lots of years of his character being developed. And the thing that I want you to understand is that as God develops your character, God will develop your convictions. As God develops your character, God will develop your convictions. And developing is sometimes that he deepens them, sometimes that he strengthens them, sometimes that he changes them. But over time, God changes my character and as he changes my mind, he changes my heart. Now let's talk about conviction for a minute. There are really two types of conviction in the Bible. One is in John chapter 16, and it's that the Spirit will convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. It basically means this, that the Holy Spirit has times where he says, don't do that. Times where he says, do do that. And times where he says, you're accountable for what you don't do and what you do do. All right? which you do do, and all the immature junior hires, he said do do, all right, yeah, whatever, all right? So that's one. The second kind of conviction is maybe what we would just call passion. It's a belief that you receive as something that must occur, right? Something that, that needs to occur, something that's transcendent, a framework. It's, it, it's a belief that in your mind and heart is actionable, And it's not just this internal, it starts with this internal thing of the Holy Spirit, 
but it becomes this overarching ideal and directional GPS in our hearts and mind that lots of us call passion. But for sake of clarity, let's just call it conviction. And let me tell you two types of conviction that I see. The first, are you with me? Is box conviction. Okay, box conviction. Box conviction is, and most guys think like this, but in terms of conviction, uh, this is applicable. We think and receive and process in boxes. And so, ladies, you've had times where you say to your husband, what are you thinking about? And he's thinking about work. And you have times where you say, what are you thinking about? And he's thinking about his hobby. And you have times where you you say, what are you thinking about? He says, nothing, right? He's not lying. He's in the nothing box, okay? And the two are not really connected. What I notice about conviction, I just saved some of your marriages right there, all right? The thing that I've noticed about conviction is that some of us have beliefs that are in boxes that are not connected to the rest of our life. And when life comes up, we develop convictions or it hits our conviction. Let me give you an example. A lot of you guys, when you saw what happened in Ferguson, okay, you began to think things about the world and about race that you weren't otherwise thinking prior to that. Why? Box conviction. It wasn't transcendent. It wasn't overarching. It wasn't a framework that you thought about it in. It was a box. It wasn't connected to anything else. Life happens to it, and it comes up, not your conviction happens to life. Does that make sense to you? So some of us, we have box conviction. And for some of us, there are things that need to be transcendent conviction that are box conviction, and vice versa. There are some of us that that we need to put things in a box and, and, and let them be open-handed issues. But, but that's the first. The second is thermostat conviction. And what does the thermostat do? Yeah, it goes up and down. So let me give you an example of thermostat conviction. Uh, thermostat conviction is God is generous and I should be too. Right? And generally around the end of the year, we, our, our, our conviction goes up like, you know, it's the end of the year, and I just got my, my giving statement, and it's lower than I thought it was going to be, and it should be higher, and so my conviction goes up, right? But then you'll get your tax return, and you'll be like, I could buy that car, or I could give. I should... What's, what's happening? Up, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Uh, one is circumstantial, and one is uh, transient, <laughs> And most of our convictions, most of our convictions, if we're honest, are one of the two. They're either in a box only to be opened whenever a Facebook post or a newsreel comes out. Or they're thermostats. That based on our environment and our circumstances and who we're talking to and what's happening to us, it goes up and down, up and down, and up and down. Uh, Biblical conviction, the kind of conviction that I'm talking about, the kind of conviction that Paul ended up happening Uh, or having as his character was being developed was boxless and thermostatless. In other words, life didn't happen to his conviction. Conviction happened to his life. And it wasn't circumstantial and it wasn't up and down. It was was driving. It was overarching. It was was passion. And it was was life-giving to him. Now, I want to be honest with you that um, when I think about that kind of conviction, I, I realize that I have a very difficult time trusting people who don't have anything that they're that convicted about. 
right? And here's the reason that I say that. Uh, because I think that anything that is worth anything needs conviction around it. Anything that's worth anything, anything that has value should have convictions. And there's some of us that, that we don't have a lot of convictions because we don't value very much. And there's others of us that we are just kind of knee-jerk and we don't really think about our convictions and we don't really develop our convictions. And so both are dangerous and both are not productive. Paul was a guy who, listen, uh, had a conviction that the gospel is for everyone. That was his fundamental conviction. And Paul was a guy who, who put his life on the line according to that conviction. And what's interesting about this is that Paul was a guy who was probably the worst guy in the world to be an apostle to the Gentiles, right? I mean, he was a professional Jew. He was a Pharisee. He, he was a guy who, who his entire identity was wrapped up in his nationality and his religion. And God said, I want you to go outside of that and over to them. Here's what I know about conviction Conviction is almost always outside of your comfort zone. Almost always outside of your comfort zone. And the reason that you're willing and able for it to be outside of your comfort zone is because God is developing your character. Do you think that when God saved Saul, and Saul was a persecutor of the church and a chief Jew, a professional Jew, a Pharisee, all those things, that he was interested in, in God saving Gentiles. He wasn't. But over those 13 years, or 15 years, or 20 years, Paul became changed, his character became developed, and his convictions, his convictions were established. And those convictions were outside of his comfort zone, and listen to me, those convictions faced opposition. Those convictions faced Opposition. I think on two levels. Number one, internally, right? I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I like these people. I don't know if I can do this, right? And in that way, God had to show up for his convictions to be established. And they faced opposition externally. They faced opposition externally. So not only did God have to change his heart, but he had to change his heart in such a way that it could withstand argument against what he believed God was doing in his heart. Do you hear what I'm saying? God had to change Paul's character enough that his convictions were strong enough that he would go outside of his comfort zone and through opposition. Now listen to me. The sequence of Paul being used is character that develops conviction that will take us outside of our comfort zone and through opposition. And when you get all of those things, you get calling. Character, conviction, and calling. Most of us, we want microwavable calling. We want to come to a church service and we want to have God audibly say something in our ear, give us a three-step plan with success automatic and predetermined. That's not how it happens. Acts 16 begins in Acts 9. 13 years later, God has changed Saul to Paul changed his convictions, changed his comfort zone, changed what he's willing to go through, and at that point, he's called. At that point, he's called. And his calling, listen to me, 
Any calling that doesn't have conviction is useless. Any calling that doesn't have conviction is absolutely useless. So let me tell you how this worked in my life. I told you, I've told you many times that God saved me, my Acts 9, uh, on Harger Street, not Damascus Road. Um, God saved me when I was 16. Okay? And God began to develop my heart and my character through guys like Frank Pardue and Dick Bradley and Jim Stock and Mark Trotter, my Barnabas, my Ananiases, right? He began to develop my character, and as he developed my character, he began to develop my convictions. And as my convictions were developed, what did it do? It took me outside of my comfort zone, for one. It took me outside of my comfort zone, but because he was developing my character, I trusted him through those. And it led me to some opposition. The enemy knows that you're called. The enemy knows that God wants to use you, and so he'll put things in front of you and say, is it really worth it to you? And so I was tested, I was opposed, I was developed, I was saved, I was being discipled. I graduated high school, and I had three things in front of me. The first was that I had the opportunity to go to art school. Now, the reason that I had the opportunity to go to art school is because I didn't want to go to math class. And so I ran out of study halls, and the only other option was to go to art class. And so I went to art class, and I would paint, and I won some shows, and blah, blah, blah. That opportunity to go to art school, do you know why I didn't go? No conviction. Why? I, I, there was nothing compelling, nothing life-altering. Nothing, there was nothing about it that mimicked calling to me. The second opportunity that I had was I had been accepted to the State Highway Patrol Police Academy. Now, there were some issues of conviction around that for me. Order, justice, peace, right? Uh, but because I came from a broken home, one of my deeply held convictions is that I wanted my family, by God's grace, to remain intact and healthy. As I began to talk to police officers, good men and women, I found out that the divorce rate for cops is around 70%. And so one conviction trumped another conviction, which meant for Tim, no State High Patrol Police Academy. The third option that I had was to go to Bible college. Okay. And when I looked over my shoulder and I looked at what God had brought me through, I looked at those convictions, I looked at that investment, I looked at those men and women, I looked at how God had saved me and all of the things that I hoped he would use me for, it was full, rife with conviction and purpose and, and, and intent, Right? I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't, I didn't know how it was going to go. But it got to the point that the only thing that I thought I could do was go to Bible college. And what was that? It was the beginnings, the germination of calling in my life. Conversion, character, conviction, calling. And for 15 years, listen to me. The only thing, not the only thing that I can do, the only thing I want to do is this. What is it that in your to be used by God, how did God save you? How are you being invested in? How are your convictions being developed? What opposition and testing and development is necessary? And what is God calling you to that's the manifestation of all of those things. Does this make sense to you? 
Paul was not a guy, listen, who woke up one day and said, I think I'll be an apostle. Paul was a guy who woke up one day and on his way to oppose God, God saved him. And he changed his character and he changed his conviction and he called him to be used by God. Here's what you need to know about conviction. Listen, conviction produces courage. Conviction produces courage. And there are, is a kind of courage that can only happen when you know God is telling you to do it. I've had people say to me, man, why did you move to Cincinnati? Well, because God called us to. Well, why did you move to Madison? Well, because God called us. Man, I don't think I could ever move my family. That's because God didn't call you to do that. God gives you courage according to your calling based on the convictions and character that he's developed. And so conviction produces courage. Conviction produces clarity. Not art school, not police academy. Both great things. Good things. Just not my thing. And then lastly, conviction provides direction. And for me... That calling directed me to Indiana, where I met a very pretty girl, to Cincinnati, where we were a part of church for 10 years, and to Madison, where we've been here for three and a half years. Has God opposed, or has, have we found opposition? Have we found testing? Has our character needed to be developed? Have our convictions changed along the way? Yes, 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 yes. But I'm doing what I'm called to do. I'm doing what I've called to do, and I can look over my shoulder, and maybe not as grand, maybe not as apostolic as Paul, but I can look over my shoulder, and I believe, I'm convicted, that anyone who is called will first have their character addressed, anyone who is called will next have their convictions changed, and then both of those things will produce a specific calling in which I have to do it, and I want to do it, because God told me to. And that, listen... That is how Paul got used. That's how Paul was used. And listen to me, that's how you and I will be used. So where are you in this process? Are you availing yourself to your character being developed and your conviction being changed? Have you had opportunities for God to call you and use you and and change you and develop you? Where, Where are you in that as we head into 2015. One thing that I do want to throw out there, though, okay? I want you to look at Acts chapter 16 and verse 6. Are you still with me? Okay. Acts 16 and verse 6. And they, this is Paul and Silas, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. I want you to make a mental note of that. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Paul is converted. His character has changed. His conviction is developed. He's called. He goes out based on that calling, and he's about to go someplace, and what does God say to him? No. And so he turns the other way, and what does God say? No. This is an interesting thing to me. I was talking to my wife. Uh, we have the benefit of hindsight in that. The next couple verses, God says yes to another place. But that spot in between the no and the yes is a really important one. It's a really, really important one. 
What happens when conviction and character and calling meets a closed door? What happens when you can see God's at work, you can see the gears turning, you feel like God's about to use you, you take a leaf off that cliff only to smack on the bottom? What happens? Two things that I want you to know. The first is that God closes doors to align us with his timing. God closes doors to align us with his timing. When I was growing up, uh, my mom would always set the clocks 10 minutes fast in our house. 10 minutes fast. And so time after time after time, I would have about a 30-second panic sprint to my car thinking that I was 10 minutes late, right? Only to realize that I was 10 minutes early. And I would come in the house and I would slam the door and I'd be like, why do you keep setting the clock early? And she would say, because I like knowing that I have 10 extra minutes. (laughs) And me, being a type A logic-driven person, would say, but you know that you don't because you set the stupid clock, right? But my mom just, it was like, it was a conviction of hers. Just had to do it. And so all the time growing up, about two years into being married, I walk into our kitchen one day. I look down at my clock. I look at the oven and I'm like, and I say to my wife, what, what happened to the clock? And you know what she said to me? Well, I said a little bit early so that I would I said, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not doing this. Yeah. When two clocks are misaligned, frustration and conflict will occur. But here's the thing that you need to know about God's. When your clock and his don't match, yours is wrong. Yeah. You see, I knew that the reason, the reason I was frustrated is because my mom's clock was wrong. But there have been times in my life where I say, man, thank you, God, for converting me. Thank you, God, for changing my character and continuing to change my character. Thank you, God, for developing and establishing my conviction and continuing to do so. Thank you, God, for calling me. Thank you, God, for wham! I didn't see that one coming. And the reason that God wants, listen, to align my time with his time is that he wants to align my heart with his heart. And what does that take me back to? My character. Do you know the people that are used by God throughout their entire lives? The ones that never stop saying, I'm 100% yours. <laughs> the ones that always say to God, I'm, I am the clay and you are the potter. The ones who always say to God, you are, you are king and I am not. And the life of being used by God from conversion to calling is simply the life of submission to the king. Paul was a man who was no more special than you and I, really, other than that he was explicit in his calling and he was explicit in his servitude to Jesus. Last week we talked about planning to change. We're heading into 2015, right? Here's what I'd like you to think about. What are the things that you know in your character, in your conviction, in your calling, God is saying, give it to me. It's not yours, never has been, never will be. What are the things that are closed doors that you have spent years trying to pry open? What are the things in your convictions that should be small and they're big or should be big and they're small? What are the things in your character that you're still saying to God, no, 
going back to our conversion, me on Harger Street, Paul on Damascus Road, you wherever you were, and saying the same prayer that I prayed, everything is yours, is as true today as it was then. And believing that that prayer will both open doors, change my life, and allow God to use me for as long as he sees fit, which is the only thing that any of us should want. I remember, and we'll end on this, that my, one of my mentors used to pray, God, use me, and when you won't use me anymore, take me home. And the thing that's amazing about that prayer is that when he was 43 years old, he had a massive brain aneurysm and died. And I remember standing at his casket, and as, <clears throat> as grieved as I was, and as, as pained as I was, I remember a peace coming over me of that prayer that apparently in the grace and sovereignty of God, uh, his use for Frank was done. A guy by the name of Count Zinzendorf is famous for this saying, God, let me preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. God, save me. God, change me. God, develop me. God, call me. God, use me as long as you want, and when you don't want to use me anymore, bring me home. And then let me be forgotten and only Jesus remain. Let me be forgotten and only Jesus remain. Why don't you stand with me? God, I thank you today for your word. I thank you today for the life of Saul, for the, for the graphic example that we have of a man who was obstinately opposed. And we thank you for the life of Paul, a man who was deeply submitted. And I think that those are the same men. God, I, I know that there are areas in my heart where I am Saul, and I pray that there are areas in my heart where I am Paul. And I pray, God, that in 2015, you will you'll change me, you'll, you'll convict me, you'll convince me, you'll call me, you'll use me, and only you will remain. God, would you take this church, those who are a part of it, those who have been a part of it, those who will be a part of it. We don't know what 2015 holds, God. We pray that you would develop us, our character, develop our conviction, call us and use us, and let only you remain. God, as we head into 2015, would you allow us to be more fully submitted, more deeply changed, more profoundly used for your glory and for our joy. In the name of Jesus, as people said. Amen.
Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there. Spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on. My Savior and my God One with Himself I cannot die My soul is purchased by His blood My life is filled with Christ on high With Christ my Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God